Dancing Queen. Come on, that's not heavy metal. Oh, hello, and welcome back to Countries in Common, your favorite father-daughter geographic podcast where we discuss what countries have in common. We really hope you enjoyed last week's episode where we highlighted the countries we awarded as our continental superstars. And I'm really excited to announce that we have new listeners from new countries. For the first time ever, someone from one of the countries that we have discussed on Countries in Common, listen, we had a listener tune in from Norway. We hope we did Norway justice as a COVID superstar. And on the off chance that you happen to know a helicopter pilot in Stavanger named Thomas, please say hi to him. Christine, my favorite partner. Oh, and I, I should probably mention my one and only too. Meg, my favorite middle daughter. Kara, my favorite oldest daughter. Her husband, Chad, my favorite son-in-law. And his mother, Terry, my kid's favorite mother-in-law. And I, always my favorite person. Took a fantastic ride with him back in May of 2017. And we got to see an aerial view of Prykestolen. Meg, did I get that right? Prykestolen? I think so. Okay, good. Or Pulpit Rock. And that was fantastic. Unfortunately, Thomas was married at the time, or Meg might have been moving to Norway. (laughs) My favorite son, Cody, couldn't manage the trip to Norway, and we missed him. Cody is the king of well-timed punchlines. I did love one comment from Cheryl and Tom saying that while listening to our podcast, they were looking at their atlas and the countries mentioned. For any of you who are under the age of 25, an atlas is an actual paper-based binded book of maps of countries. It was an archaic system of visualizing maps before Google. (laughs) On today's episode, we're going to stick with the same theme. We had a lot of fun talking about countries that have done well in each continent of the world and finding things that they have in common, even though they are geographically very distant from each other. My favorite episode to date. You say that after every episode. Yeah, but Meg, it's true. (laughs) That's true. Anyway, today is about some more continental superstars. But since we can't give a gold medal to them all, today is about our second place on the podium, the silver medalist. Still a great feat in this pandemic, but these are the runners up. By the way, I definitely went down a mental existential crisis about the term runners up. I was like, is it runner ups, runners ups, runners up? Good thing I could just ask Google and not have to rifle through an atlas to find out that because the noun in the term is runner, it is the noun that is pluralized. And then I could sleep soundly knowing the title of our next episode. If you're looking for what criteria we use to pick out our silver medalist, please go back to episode three as Meg goes into some detail about that. But here are our list of runners up that we will be discussing today. For Europe, Finland. For Oceania or Australia. Papua New Guinea, for Africa, Burundi, for South America, Uruguay, for Asia, Taiwan, and for North America, Cuba. Before we get started, I want to go over a small correction on my part. Last week, I stated that Norway has both the northernmost and easternmost points of Europe due to the town of Vardo. Okay, so number one, I mentioned that Vardo is on the Svalbard Peninsula. So not only is Vardo not part of Svalbard, but Svalbard is 
not a peninsula. Vardo is still the easternmost town of Norway, but it is part of the Troms og Finnmark county in northern Norway and is located on the island of Vardøya, which is accessible from the mainland of Norway via the Vardo Tunnelin. On the other side of that tunnel is a peninsula, but it is called the Varanger Peninsula. Svalbard, on the other hand, is an archipelago roughly seven degrees north of Vardo. Dad, since we have described the difference between islands, islets, and atolls before, do you want to give our listeners a quick lesson on the difference between a peninsula, an archipelago, and how about we add in a cape? Well, a cape is something you put on your back like Dracula. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Meg, I'm just kidding. An archipelago, sometimes called an island group or island chain, is a chain, cluster, or collection of islands, or sometimes a sea containing a small number of scattered islands. Some of the archipelagos in the world with the largest number of scattered islands are the Archipelago Sea from our European runner-up, Finland, which has about 50,000. I will mention that most of these are very small, with only 257 islands over one square kilometer. The Canadian Arctic Archipelago, with over 36,000. And the 30,000 islands of Canada on the eastern coast of Georgian Bay, which has, ready, about 30,000. Although, it's a tough place to boat at night. Cody and his gang of merry cousins were invited to a cottage in the 30,000 islands once, and were told from the launch to go to the 14th island on the left. Now, such precise instructions in the dark of night are fraught with the chances that complete strangers will be camping on your shore in the morning looking for a hot cup of coffee. (laughs) A peninsula is a landform surrounded by water on the majority of its border while being connected to a mainland from which it extends. The surrounding water is usually understood to be continuous, though not necessarily named as a single body of water. Peninsulas are not always named as such, though. Indeed, a cape is a type of peninsula. The major difference is that a cape usually represents a marked change in the trend of the coastline, which makes them prone to natural forms of erosion, mainly tidal actions. This results in capes having a relatively short geological lifespan, while other types of peninsulas are more geologically stable. Perfect. My second small correction is that while Vardo is definitely still situated further east than St. Petersburg and Istanbul at 31 degrees east. It isn't, by most people's definition, the easternmost point in Europe. It is commonly accepted that the line that separates Europe from Asia in Russia is the Ural Mountains, which sit at about 59 degrees east. But still, it was surprising that it's that far east, Vardo. Well, Meg, it is tough to know where Europe ends and Asia begins. Perhaps they need a greeter at the border. Asia, sir, to the left of that mountains. Enjoy your shopping. (laughs) Well, Vardo is definitely still further east than most of our silver medalist, Finland. I still want to make it clear that Finland technically has some parts that are further east than Norway, but it's confusing to define. I just don't want to upset our new Scandinavian listeners. So, Finland was a very close contender in terms of pandemic superstardom. With a population of about 5.5 million, they have recorded about 60,200 cases of COVID. 
They have only recorded 764 deaths and their positivity rate over 3.4 million tests is only 1.7%. Really and truly, Norway got the gold because they had a lower rate of deaths and a higher rate of tests. Hey, that kind of rhymes. Speaking of Finnish-Norwegian competition, which I'm sure is rife, I want to talk a bit about the Halti Mountain Summit. So this mountain straddles the border of the two countries, and Halti is considered the highest point in Finland. But since the border is actually marked on a slope, the peak of Halti is not technically inside Finland, and so it cannot be considered Finland's highest peak. In 2015, a group of Norwegians began a campaign to give the peak of Halti to Finland for its centenary in 2017 by moving the border between the two countries by about 200 meters. The idea gained substantial public support and in July 2016, it was being strongly considered by Norway's Prime Minister Erna Solberg. Ultimately, she chose not to move the border, uh, with the reason that Norway's constitution defines the country as an indivisible and inalienable realm. The highest peak in Finland is Ridnitsoka, which is 59 meters shorter than the summit of Halti. Although Finland is sometimes referred to as part of Scandinavia, it has some differences from the other countries in the area. Primarily, the Finnish language is very different from the Nordic languages of Norwegian, Danish, Swedish, as well as Icelandic and Faroese. Faroese, like the Faroe Islands. Faroese. There you go. Okay. Nothing ease about Faroese. <laughs> Finnish is considered to be a Uralic language, which has origins somewhere near those Ural Mountains in Russia that Meg was referring to earlier. Other languages who fall in the Uralic language umbrella are Hungarian and Estonian, along with several languages spoken throughout Russia, including Mari, Udmurt, and Mordvin. We actually have some listeners in Hungary. Hi, Jill, Eva, and Bianca. They love your voice, Meg. Of course. <laughs> Finnish actually has the longest known palindrome. For, you, for those of you who don't know, a palindrome is a phrase or word that reads the same forwards or backwards. In Finnish, the 19-letter word sai pukivi kau pias is the word for a dealer of lye or caustic soda. Sai pukivi kau pias. My God, Meg, you're good. I Google it. All right, what Meg said. I'm not saying it again. My granddaughter's name is a palindrome, Ava. So is the Swedish group ABBA. Speaking of music, Finland has often been called the promised land of heavy metal because there are more than 50 metal bands for every 100,000 inhabitants, more than any other nation in the world. Sorry, Dad, I don't think ABBA qualifies as heavy metal, especially because they are Swedish. Other than listening to heavy metal, Finns love spending time in a sauna. Are you sure you're not finished, Dad? Because I could swear every time I've been to a pool where there is a sauna, that is where you will be. The word sauna is actually of Finnish origin from over 7,000 years ago, and the sauna was used as a way to wash up before running hot water existed. The word can literally translate to bath. Nearly all Finnish houses have either their own sauna or, in a multi-story apartment house, a timeshare sauna. 
My brother and that merry bunch of cousins, they have a cottage with an ice hut, and sometimes they turn their ice hut into a sauna. And true to Finnish tradition, when they come out of the sauna, they sometimes jump into the cold lake or roll around in fresh snow. Apparently, these hot to cold extremes can release feelings of euphoria and can help with relief and stress tolerance. The Finns also have the highest per capita consumption of coffee and milk, which I guess go hand in hand. So one might think the number one sport in Finland is hockey or soccer or possibly some of the Olympic sports such as ski jumping or cross-country skiing. But you'd be wrong, Meg. They're famous for wife-carrying ukankato or akankato. The sport involves a man carrying his wife through an obstacle course. The course is 250 meters long through a water obstacle and hurdles. The sport originated in Son Kajarvi. The legend is that in the 1800s, a robber named Herko Rosvo Rokinen, a.k.a. Rokinen the robber, and his gang of robbers would go into villages and steal food and women. They would carry the women off on their backs to become their wives. Now, the competition has been an annual event in Son Kajarvi since 1992. Women have to be a minimum of 49 kilograms, 108 pounds. If she's under that weight, she has to wear a weighted rucksack or knapsack to to the minimum weight. There are three popular ways to carry their wife. Piggyback, fireman style over a shoulder, or the most popular, the Estonian, where the wife wraps her legs around the hubby's neck and holds on to his back. The best thing about the contest is that the first prize is the wife's weight in beer. Imagine that, Meg. What would be a good prize for women carrying their husbands? Equal rights and all, you know. Wine? I'd be okay with the husband's weight in wine. Preferably an Italian Pinot Grigio. Women are doing their thing in Finland, though, when they're not being carried through an obstacle course. Like Sanamarin, who is currently leading Finland's way through the obstacle course known as this pandemic. She is their prime minister, and at 35, she is the youngest female state leader and Finland's youngest ever prime minister. She actually took that title of uh, the youngest female state leader from Jacinta in December of 2019. Jacinda, Meg? Have we ever heard of somebody named Jacinda? I think it's my mission in life to bring her up in every single episode (laughs) of our podcast. I think there will be some times that it's tough, but I think I can find a way. We should have a little bell that goes off. Jacinda. Ding, ding. Yeah. Sana also has a very female-dominated cabinet with 12 out of 19 being women. And with all the saunaing, beer drinking, wife carrying, coffee and heavy metal, Finland sure knows how to keep their people happy. They stole the title of the world's happiest country from Norway in 2018 and have been holding on to the top spot since. In 1906, Finland became the first European country to grant all adult citizens the right to vote and the first country in the world to grant them all the right to run for public office as well. It has also been rated the world's most stable country in the world between 2011 and 2016. Meg, things in Finland were not always stable, but they are a very courageous bunch who have a lot of national pride and have used this in the past to be effective against an invasion As a preamble to that invasion, I just want to mention that Finland went through a bloody civil war in 1918 in which the two sides, White Finland, which was backed with German troops against the Finnish Socialist Workers' Republic, or Red Finland, which was backed by the Soviet Union. The White side won after a number of battles whereupon 36,000 Finns lost their lives. The war deeply divided Finland. 
But when the undeclared Soviet invasion of November 30th, 1939, the country pulled together because of their deep sense of national pride. Old differences were put aside to defend their country. And the Finns, Meg, were the masters of winter war. To the Soviets, they were thought to be the ghosts of the forest. The Finns were hugely outnumbered in the initial conflict. Soviet Union had an army 50 times the size of the Finns and with the element of surprise, felt that they would do as the Germans had done in Europe and conquer the Finns quickly. However, the Finns forgot to read the Soviet script and devastated the initial attack by the Soviets. By means of the so-called Moti tactic, the name taken from the Finnish word for a cord of firewood, they sought to break invading columns into small segments where they destroyed them piecemeal. The final advantage of the Finns was their phenomenally high morale. They knew they were fighting for their national survival. The Finns were able to concentrate their troops along the Mannerheim line of defense, but the Soviets had to track through very difficult forest terrain with little in the way of roads or even pathways. The Finns camouflaged in white uniforms and were expert cross-country skiers able to get behind or flank the Soviets and pick them apart. The Finns were also highly skilled forest and winter soldiers and focused on taking out small sections at a time and sl- swiftly moving on. Mm. Now, this is a terrible uh, analogy, but I, I thought we'd have a little fun with it because it's such a, a, a horrible thing that happened. Okay, go. It's like a hockey game on a rink the size of a soccer field, and Finland can use only five players and a goalie. Now, the five players are Timo Solani, Yari Curry, Saku Koivu, Teppo Numanen, Yerki Lume, and Tuka Rask in net. Tuka Rask should have been a Maple Leaf mate. <laughs> All at the height of their careers and fitness, and they are playing 50 Soviet beer league players. The score at the end of the game is 50 to nothing for Finland. The Soviets didn't put their elite soldiers up against the outnumbered Finns, and the Finns took full advantage. Eventually, the Soviets threw the best troops and more of them, and the Finns, without help or backup, had to surrender. But it galvanized the Finns because they put their country ahead of their differences. Finland is also known as the Land of a Thousand Lakes, and there are many articles that state that they have almost 190,000 lakes. However, the definition of a lake can vary. The country with the most lakes in the world over one square kilometer is actually Canada, with just over 880,000. Canada has over 60% of the lakes in the world. Second up is Russia with less than a quarter of the number and and U.S. third at about one-ninth of Canada's lakes. Finland doesn't actually make the top 10, but again, that's because of the varying definition of a lake. Of this, it is certain. If you're in Finland, there's a body of water likely within a stone's throw. They have also one of the world's three species of freshwater seals in the Saima Lake system. Electronics is one of the largest industries in Finland, due largely to electronics company Nokia. The game Angry Birds was also developed in Finland, and they have an Angry Birds theme park in Tampere. Why does it not surprise me that the country who made the Nokia phone with the original first mobile phone game, Snake, also made the viral game Angry Birds. Angry Birds? What are those? Birds that attack? Do they bite? Are they poisonous, Meg? That actually brings us directly into our next country, which is the home to the world's only known genus of poisonous bird. So Meg, some advice. If you're in Papua New Guinea and a tour guide yells, Patui, at you... (laughs) 
The best thing to do is duck. Not to think, gross, that guide is spitting. <laughs> the patui is one of New Guinea's most widely spread birds. At least three species of patui have a strong poison in their skin and feathers. The hooded and variable patui being the deadliest of the three. The poison they have in their feathers is batach, batra, meg? Batrachotoxin. Batrachotoxin, which is about 5,000 times more powerful than cyanide. Now, frogs in South America also have the same poison that they secrete. Both the frogs and birds eat a type of beetle that in turn eats mites that make the poison. Beetles were actually discovered by a New Guinea man named Avit Waco. I thought a British guy discovered the beetles. <laughs> Avit's not from, from Liverpool, Meg. <laughs> uh. Who used equipment left behind the village when a graduate student from Chicago left the equipment. Avit had a grade two education. The graduate student was Jack Dumbacher, and when he shared it with a colleague in Chicago, the colleague mentioned it to Dr. John Daly, not the long-driving golfer, who had years before discovered the toxin in his studies of frogs in South America. Well, even though a poisonous bird might be widely spread in Papua New Guinea, COVID is much less so. Papua New Guinea, with a population of almost 9 million, has reported less than 1,500 cases of COVID-19 and only 16 deaths. They have conducted over 47,000 tests, so their positivity rate is only about 3%. Papua New Guinea is considered one of the 17 megadiverse countries in the world, coming in at number 12. This is likely due to the fact that the island of New Guinea is also home to the third largest rainforest in the world after the Amazon and the Congo rainforest. Papua New Guinea is a world-class birding destination and is particularly famous for the colorful birds of paradise. The national bird is considered sacred by some Papuan tribes, but it is under threat from illegal trading, taxidermy, and poaching. The world's largest butterfly is the Queen Alexandra's birdwing, and it is native to Papua New Guinea. It has a wingspan of 25 centimeters, wow. 10 inches for you non-converts to the metric system. Papua New Guinea lies on the Ring of Fire, an area prey to volcanic activity. Recent eruptions include Mount Tavuvar in 2014, Kadavar Island in 2018, and Mount Ulawu in 2019. The mountains and valleys of Papua New Guinea have been really helpful at limiting contact with the outside world. Indeed, this is, a, this is a funny one, Meg. During the 1930s, Australian gold prospectors famously discovered around a million people living in remote valleys in the North Guinea Highlands. Until then, white colonialists had deemed the area unsettled, but it turned out to be the most densely populated region of the country. I just love how it's like discovered too, like as if they weren't there all along. Um, but seriously, how do you lose 1 million people in the 1930s? I, I, that blows my mind. I mean, if this was the 1730s, totally get it, but. Right. In addition to its high biodiversity in terms of plants, animals, and geographic elevations, Papua New Guinea is the world's most linguistically diverse country with nearly 850 native languages spoken. It only technically has four official languages being Tok Pisin, English, Hirimotu, and Papua New Guinean Sign Language. Papuans are known to be plausibly the world's first agriculturalist. 
archaeologists have discovered evidence of gardening from up to 9,000 years ago. The word Papua may come from a Portuguese explorer, Jorge de Menezes, who in 1526 became the first European visitor to Papua New Guinea. He named one of the islands Islas dos Papuas, or Land of Fuzzy-Haired People, or at least this is one of the theories. Despite all the diversity of language, the population of Papua New Guinea is considered to be one of the more heterogeneous nations of the world, identifying at about 99% Papuan. They really only have one main city, Port Moresby, on the mainland, as the next largest urban center, I suppose, Lai, has only about 76,000 inhabitants. Other major islands that are part of Papua New Guinea include Bougainville and Manus, as well as New Ireland, New Britain, and Duke of York Island. It's almost as if some British guy was in charge of naming some of these. Meg, I'd say there was likely a pub in New Ireland, and a sailor named Paddy threw the name in the hat. <laughs> Thankfully, the majority of the rest of the 600 or so islands have more interesting local names, but I won't embarrass myself by butchering their pronunciations. You are right, Meg. In 1873, British explorer Captain John Moresby surveyed the southeast area of New Guinea and founded the capital city, Port Moresby, named after his father. Wait, didn't he also technically just name it after himself? Just slyly trying to pass it off as an homage to his father? If that was the plan, if he really wanted to, like, honor his father and name something after it, couldn't he have used the guy's first name? Well, his father's first name was Fairfax. This could have been Port Fairfax. That would have been actually quite nice, Meg. Right? Anyway, Port Moresby um, is only home to about 284,000 people out of a population of 9 million. And as you said, their next largest city is only 76,000 people. Papua New Guinea is considered to be the number three world ranking of rural living population, with 87% of their population residing in rural settings with few to none of the facilities of modern life. Wow. There are two other countries that have even higher percentages of their population living in rural settings. Number one is Trinidad and Tobago, where 92% of their population of 1.3 live in rural settings. Although this is debated on some sites, as the definition of rural can be ambiguous. But Papua New Guinea and our African runner-up fall into the top five and often seem to be battling out for the most rural population. While Papua New Guinea's population is about 87% rural, Burundi's is about 88%, which we are going to talk about a little later. New Guinea is split virtually directly in the middle, and the west side is part of Papua New Guinea, while the east side is Indonesia's Papo province. So in Indonesia, it's Papo on the island of New Guinea, a little tough on the post office, I'm assuming. Definitely. If you look at the line dividing Indonesia and Papua New Guinea, you'll notice a bite-shaped divot into Indonesia along the Fly River. You might think that that was a result of the river, but the line is completely straight north and south of the bite. Why is that the only point where there's a change? Headhunting, and not the kind where you look for an executive for corporations. <laughs> this bite was a, a result of the practice of preserving the heads of people that were killed. This practice was widespread in the region in the late 19th century, 
the British were granted the extra territory to the Fly River by the Dutch at the time to be able to control the practice and not have to cross an international border. Mm. Not only is the island of New Guinea split between two countries, but geopolitically it is technically split between two continents as Indonesia is classified as part of Asia and Papua New Guinea is part of the continent of Australia or Oceania. And to boot, New Guinea is part of the Malay Archipelago, which is the largest archipelago in terms of area and consists of over 25,000 isles and islets, making it the fourth largest archipelago by number of islands after the three you mentioned earlier. Something else they have in, in common with Finland, surprisingly, is snow-covered mountaintops. Even though Papua New Guinea sits 160 kilometers north of Australia, just below the equator, and they enjoy a tropical climate, snow has been known to fall on the mountaintops of the mainland. Mount Wilhelm is their highest peak at 4,500 meters and is often considered to be the highest point in the continent of Oceania. While Mount Wilhelm isn't on any international borders, it isn't technically the highest peak on the island of New Guinea, though, which is considered the mainland of Papua New Guinea. New Guinea is considered to be the highest island in the world, thanks to Mount Wilhelm and 13 other mountains that are higher than 4,500 meters. Meg, here comes our segue into the next country. The second highest island in the world is Hawaii, followed by Borneo, and next up at number four is Taiwan. Well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Taiwan's highest peak is Yushan, which is 3,952 meters, but there are 21 other peaks above 3,000 meters on the island. The Taroko Gorge in Taroko National Park covers an area of 92,000 hectares and is home to unique geological and, and natural resources. Spectacular marble gorge at Taroko, the Kingshu Cliff rising high above the Pacific Ocean, the peaceful trail along the Shakadang River. Sounds good. And the cascading waterfalls of Bayang Trail are some of the treasures and delights of Earth and the Heavens that await visitors to the park. Well, if that wasn't a tourist grabber, I don't know what is. Well, I mentioned the place because I had a neighbor once who, who spent six months in Taiwan yeah. and told me this was the place to go. It was beautiful. Well, something else that may attract tourists is that Taiwan has recorded only 960 positive cases of COVID and only nine deaths. They actually have a positivity rank of only 0.2%. And frankly, the biggest reason we gave Vietnam the gold was due to Vietnam having four times the population of Taiwan, which is 24 million. Possibly one of the reasons why they've done so well with COVID is because prior to the pandemic, Taiwan had been dubbed the face mask capital of Asia as Taiwanese people often wear surgical face masks. They wear masks to protect them from illness, to protect their skin from the sun, or to filter out pollutants. Even newscasters will wear face masks while they are on the air. Taiwan has some of the worst air pollution of all of Asia, so this makes a lot of sense why everyone is masked up. 
Something else they have in common with Papua New Guinea, by the way, are the butterflies. Taiwan is home to 400 species of butterflies, 50 of which are endemic to the country. Taiwan is the 39th largest island in the world, just larger than the Prince of Wales Island in Canada and New Britain in Papua New Guinea. Taiwan, also called Ila Formosa, which means beautiful island, is also known by another name, the Kingdom of the Corals. And you know what, Meg? It only takes about eight hours to drive around the entire country. In northern Canada, it takes eight hours to drive to a convenience store. (laughs) But how long do you think it would take to scooter around the island, given that there are two times more registered scooters to cars in Taiwan? Uh, Probably about uh, twice the time, but half the gas. Mm. Then did you know that in Taiwan, people carry their own garbage out to the curb and throw it in the truck? The garbage truck plays Beethoven's Fur Elise to announce their arrival. (laughs) Also, one-sixth of all screws in the world are made in Taiwan. There are more than 50,000 different types of screws made in Taiwan, and there is a district of Kaohsiung where there are a cluster of 700 factories dedicated to making screws. You know what, Meg? I hope they make the Robertson screw because those were invented in 1908 by P.L. Robertson, who was Canadian. (laughs) And Meg, did you know that there are four main Robertson heads? Yellow, green, red, and black. And the Robertson number two is the most popular. I have at least 20 Robertson red screwdrivers, Meg. I feel like you've donated a couple of those to my own toolbox as well. I'm sure I've donated to everybody's toolbox, Meg. (laughs) I wonder if you can buy a red Robertson at a 7-Eleven in Taiwan, which definitely do not take eight hours to find. Not only does Taiwan have more 7-Eleven stores per person than any country in the world, but the 7-Elevens also include much more than junk food, including dry cleaning, a place to pay college tuition, and a place to print documents. They are owned by a Japanese company. Taiwan houses the largest collection of Chinese art and was the first place in Asia to legalize same-sex marriage, although only in 2019. Women make up about 33% of the legislature, and they also have a female leader. Tsai Ing-wen has been president of Taiwan, or as it is officially referred to, the Republic of China, since 2016. I cannot help but mention how fascinating I find it that we have mentioned so many female leaders in countries that have done well with COVID. There are only 25 female heads of government globally at this moment, and four of them have either been gold or silver medalists, as per you and I. Speaking of medals... Because of the One China policy, Taiwan is not allowed to use its own official name in international events such as the Olympic Games. Instead, the country is called Chinese Taipei, which denotes it as a renegade province of China. When it participates in the Olympics, Taiwanese athletes carry not Taiwan's national flag, but the Chinese Taipei Olympic flag. They have won a total of five golds in the Summer Olympics, three in weightlifting and two in Taekwondo. Bubble tea, which is now a global phenomenon, was invented in Taiwan, as well as instant noodles. And you better make sure to finish your bubble tea and instant noodles as it is considered bad manners in Taiwan to waste food. So wherever you eat in Taiwan, be sure to finish what's on your plate. My mother, your grandmother Meg, would be proud to have been a Taiwanese mother. I couldn't leave the table as a child without finishing my plate. You can have a really sore neck if you've slept with your head on the table and see your brother, Andrew, having pancakes while you still need to eat your cream spinach. (laughs) In Taiwan, 13 is not an unlucky number, but 4 is. 
because the Taiwanese word for four sounds like the Taiwanese word for death. Many new condo buildings, Meg, actually in Toronto now, have no fourth floors or no floors with four in them and no 13th floors, which they've been doing for years. However, if you have an apartment on the 16th floor, you are 13 floors from the ground. Wow. And they probably have a lot of condo buildings in Taiwan, especially in their main cities. By the way, their capital city is called Taipei. And then their next largest city is New Taipei. I feel like that might get confusing. I hope they also have a good postal system. Taiwan has the 10th highest population in density in the world, and that is based on population versus area of the country. With two-thirds of the country covered in mountains, about 80% of the population of Taiwan lives in urban areas, which is so different from Papua New Guinea, as well as our next country, which is about the same size as Taiwan. Burundi, our country's in common African runner-up, has reported about 2,300 cases of COVID-19. They have also only reported three deaths, but I actually have a source that let me know that this number is probably not very well reported. Indeed, given the fact that their rural population is so high, autopsies are not super common in Burundi, so often the cause of death is unknown. Now, their case count is still low, and they have tested about 90,000 people, so their positivity rate is similar to that of Papua New Guinea at 2.5%. I must add that it makes a lot of sense for populations who do not live in urban areas to have low rates of COVID, but it also makes me wonder how much medical access there is in these rural areas. Rural does not necessarily equate to spread out. Burundi has a population density of about 400 people per square kilometer, making it 20th in the world and third in Africa behind the tiny island of Mauritius and neighboring Rwanda. Burundi has a population of roughly 11 million and growing. Burundi has the fifth highest total fertility rate in the world, and thus their population growth rate is 2.5% per year, which is more than double the average global pace. Meg? Have you heard about Gustav, the man-eating crocodile from Burundi? He is believed to be the biggest crocodile in the world, over 18 feet and 2,000 pounds. He lives in the Rizizi River and the northern shores of Lake Tagakniki. Tanganika. You got this. Tanganika. And is believed to have killed more than 300 people. Records of his attack on villagers living on the northeastern shores of Lake Tagonica date back to 1987. Wow. Meg, this is one croc that would be better suited, sewn into boots and handbags, and for the sake of all those poor victims back in 1987. By the way, Meg, Lake Tagonica is the world's longest Mm. freshwater lake, the second deepest and the second largest in volume. It is also the second largest to the African Great Lakes after Lake Victoria. I didn't actually know about the African Great Lakes until doing this research. The group consists of Lake Victoria, Albert, and Edward, which drain into the White Nile River, Lakes Tiganica and Kivu, which drain into the Congo River, and Lake Malawi, which drains into the Zambezi via the Shire River. Lake Turkana is also considered to be part of this group, but it is a saltwater lake located in Kenya that has no outflow. You know what, Meg? I compared these African lakes to ours in North America, and here's how they compare. Unlike the African Great Lakes, those in North America lie in separate basins and form a single, naturally interconnected body of fresh water. Lake Victoria is the lake superior of the bunch. 
They are both the largest in terms of area and kind of have the same shape. Lake Taganica is the Lake Michigan of the African Great Lakes, long and deep. Lake Malawi is the Lake Huron of the bunch. Both are not as long, but they are wider than the previous group. Lake Kivu is like Lake Ontario, kind of in the middle of the pack. Certainly not as large as the other ones, but much bigger than the rest. Lake Albert is Lake Erie, similar in shape, small in terms of volume compared to the rest, and still has a significant area. Finally, Lake Edward is like Lake St. Clair of the bunch. Though in North America's case, Lake St. Clair is not technically a great lake, but both are the smallest lakes and they both connect much deeper, larger lakes. Collectively, the African Great Lakes contain 31,000 cubic kilometers, <laughs> which is much larger than the volume of the North American Great Lakes at about 22,000 cubic kilometers. But in terms of area, North America is larger with 244,000 kilometers compared to Africa's about 146,000 kilometers. Wow. I'll tell you somewhere else that Burundi has taken a gold medal, a literal one, in the Olympics. Burundi participated for the first time in the 1996 Olympic Games and won a gold medal. Venuste Niongabo came in first in the 5,000-meter race. In doing so, Burundi became the poorest country in the world to ever win an Olympic gold medal. FYI, Canada has never won a medal in the 5,000-meter event. It is pretty interesting considering the fact that in 2014, the country's president banned group jogging as it was seen as an opportunity to plan anti-government activities. I feel like he may be limiting the country's Olympic competitiveness in doing so. But there are plenty of other opportunities to get together with their neighbors. In fact, traditional banana beer is drunk from one central pot by almost a dozen people using long straws. The practice has evolved with time and you can still find people drinking beer using straws in bars. I feel like my German and Irish heritage tells me that drinking beer with a straw is unacceptable, but as I drink a lot of other carbonated beverages, occasionally with a straw, I don't see why it would be so bad. I'll tell you, Meg, Burundians are probably not washing down a burger with that banana beer. Meat only accounts for about 2% or less of the average food intake in Burundi. When they do eat beef, the horns of the cow are planted in the soil near the house, as believed to bring good luck. In fact, cows play a significant role in the national culture. A typical Kurundi greeting, a masho, translate, may you have herds of cattle. Cattle are a symbol of health, happiness, and prosperity. Regardless of your economic status, as long as you have a cow, then you are a rich person in Burundi. The more cows you have, the better your social status. The entirety of our South American runner-up would be considered rich beyond belief by Burundian standards. Remember when, when, uh, when I said in episode three that New Zealand had two cows per person, but they weren't even number one for cows per capita? That's because Uruguay has the record with four cows per person, or almost 12 million cows. Uruguayans are also the biggest consumer of beef in the world. If they planted the horns in their front yard, the country would be covered in cattle horns. <laughs> Uruguay has reported about 61,000 cases of COVID-19 and only 631 deaths, with their population of 3.5 million. Their positivity rate is among the lowest in South America at 5.8%, which was slightly higher than that of Venezuela, although they have conducted about three times the tests per capita uh, compared to Venezuela. Something 
that has to be mentioned here again is that we are referring to numbers that are shown to us on a computer screen, not what may be actually happening in real life. But something we mentioned on the last episode in terms of corruption is that Venezuela is rated as one of the most corrupt nations in the world, while Uruguay is rated as the least corrupt nation in Latin America, which includes all of South America as well as parts of Central America and parts of the Caribbean. Uruguay has been rated first in Latin America in terms of democracy, peace, e-government, meaning the government's use of technological communications to provide public services. They are also ranked as the number one country for press freedom in South America. You know what, Meg? I knew very little about Uruguay before this last week, and I'm amazed by this country. First, though, something I found strange about Uruguay is that its official name is Oriental Republic of Uruguay. Because for a long time, before independence, it was part of the Banda Oriental, or the Eastern Bank, a colonial designation for all territories to the east of the Uruguay River and north of the River Plate. The inhabitants were known then as Orientales. It is still a common denonym for the Uruguayan people, which is also easier for me to pronounce. <laughs> We seem to be finding some outstanding Olympic countries in today's episode as Uruguay won its only Olympic gold medals in 1924 and the 1928 Olympics. They won these medals in football. The first ever FIFA World Cup was then held in Uruguay in 1930, and they won. In fact, Uruguay won two of the first four World Cups in soccer. For their size and population and playing some of the superpowers of soccer, that's an amazing accomplishment. Kids in that country must be given a soccer ball, you know, before they leave the hospital at birth. They have a perfect record when reaching the finals. The Economist named Uruguay Country of the Year in 2013, acknowledging the policy of legalizing the production, sale, and consumption of cannabis. They are the first country in the world to do so. Meg, do you know the second country to legalize the production, sale, and consumption of cannabis? Dad, I don't even know what cannabis is. Is that like a plant or something? Of course you don't, Meg. Of (laughs) course you don't. (laughs) It was Canada, Meg. The only difference between Canada and Uruguay's cannabis legalization is that buying it is not legal for foreigners in Uruguay. Wow, this is all news to me. Okay, I'm going to try to keep this short, but that is hard as Uruguay is first in a lot of areas. (sighs) On a per capita basis, Uruguay contributes more troops to United Nations peacekeeping missions than any other country. As part of the One Laptop Per Child project in 2009, Uruguay became the first country in the world to provide a laptop for every primary school student. Their national anthem, which lasts more than five minutes, is the world's longest in terms of performance duration, and it's quite catchy. They are also the first country in South America to establish a welfare state in 1903. It is one of the few countries in South America that have access to clean water for its entire population. The country also has the lowest poverty and population growth rates in South America. And interestingly enough, they also have the highest urbanization and literacy rates in the region. Nearly 98 to 100% of Uruguay's 2020 electricity came from renewable energy, mostly hydroelectric facilities and wind parks. They had a dramatic green shift that took less than 10 years, and it all happened without government funding. Uh, And in doing so, they actually managed to lower electricity costs and slash the country's carbon footprint. That 10-year period 
started during Jose Mojica's presidency. Well done. Thank you. Jose was known by his nickname, the world's poorest president, as he donated 90% of his income to charity during his time between 2010-2015. He owns a one-bedroom house and a three-legged dog. Jose Mojica recently resigned as a senator after having served as president in a landslide victory. He refused a pension from his time as a senator, and he drove around in a 1987 Volkswagen Beetle and was offered 1 million pesos for the car, but said no as he wouldn't be able to transport his three-legged dog. Hmm. The capital city, Montevideo, is home to about half of the population, and the city has some beautiful architecture with a lot of Italian influence. The legislative palace is made of 20 colors of marble, all from the Uruguayan quarries. The city boasts a 22-kilometer-long promenade along the city's entire coastline, making it the longest continuous sidewalk in the world. Uruguayans are very fond of naming their houses, which is why every single house in the country has its own name. They also name their cities from a collection of names that they use for many other cities. For this reason, you may get confused if you are traveling from one city to another. Geez, all these countries we're talking about, like their postal workers must work really hard. They must, Meg. They must. Yeah. Uruguayans have uh, free access to education, which is why their literacy rate is the highest in South America at 98.7%. A lot of these liberal laws come from the country's early separation of church from state. In fact, they have taken the religious notation out of national holidays. For example, Easter is referred to as La Semana de Turismo, or Tourism Week, the Catholic holiday of the 8th of December, which is the feast day of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, is Beach Day in Uruguay, and Christmas Day is called Dia de la Familia, which is the Day of Family. Although Uruguay changed the name for Christmas, at least it was still a national holiday. Whereas until 1997, Cuba did not cite Christmas as an official holiday at all. Pope John Paul II visited Cuba in January of 1998. What do you think, Meg? I bet you that the Pope had some influence in changing a holiday to a statutory holiday just a couple weeks beforehand. It was probably in his appearance contract. You know, like when Beyonce has to have an Iberian iced water at exactly three degrees Celsius in her dressing room and two strawberry flavored Twinkies. I'm sorry, did that research just come up during your time researching Cuba? Or do you happen to research Beyonce's appearance contract in your spare time? Ooh, are you planning for Beyonce to make an appearance at like someone's (laughs) birthday party? I doubt that, Meg. (laughs) I think it was uh, to do with all this talk about female leaders. I think, Lee, you came across a song, Who Runs the World? Girls. Speaking of women and their rights, did you know that Cuba was the first Latin American country to legalize abortion? The only other Latin American country with legal access to abortion is also the other Latin American country with free compulsory education until 15, which is Uruguay. Indeed, Cuba has one of the highest literacy rates in the world at 99.8%. It's also one of the few countries in the world where the female literacy rate is actually higher than the male literacy rate. They rank 11th place in the world uh, in number of doctors per capita, which may be one of the reasons they've done so well with COVID. With a population of 11.3 million, Cuba has only reported 53,000 cases, and they have a 2.2% positivity rate among 2.4 million tests. 
months. They have been having a bit of a tough second wave, though it seems to be calming down and deaths have remained very low with a total of 336. One other thing about Cuba's medical field. In 2015, Cuba became the first country to eradicate mother-to-child transmission of HIV and syphilis, a milestone hailed by the World Health Organization as one of the greatest public health achievements possible. So let's have a little history about Cuba. Since Cuba was a Spanish territory between 1492 and 1898, during the Spanish-American War, the United States assisted Cuba in gaining independence from Spain. Cuba gained independence from the U.S. in 1902. Fulgencio Batista Fulgencio 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 Batista Izaldivar was a Cuban military officer and politician who served as the elected president of Cuba from 1940 to 44 and was a U.S. backed military dictator from 1952 to 59 before being overthrown during the Cuban Revolution. Che Guevara a revolutionary accomplice of Fidel Castro can trace his Celtic background to Patrick Lynch, who was born in Galway, Ireland, in 1715. He immigrated to Buenos Aires via Bilboa in 1749. The Irish and the Cubans actually have a lot in common when it comes to revolutions. Both countries used extreme guerrilla warfare because of the strength of their opponents. Cuba is in a time warp, Meg. In the 1940s and 50s, Cuba was a tropical high society destination. Movie stars, moguls, politicians, mm. and everyone that wanted to be seen was seen in Cuba, particularly Havana. The U.S. influence was massive on the island. Organized crime was rampant, and Havana was a gambling capital with casinos and even a racetrack called Oriental Racetrack. It must have been on the east side, Meg. <laughs> Avelino Gomez, a jockey who is famous in Canada, was born in Havana and started his racing career at Oriental Park. Stay tuned, everybody. You're definitely going to get some more obscure horse racing facts in this podcast. Well, I, actually, when I went to high school, his children went to my same high school, and he was oh, he really? was one of the nicest people on the planet, Avelino Gomez. Every Every jockey at Woodbine will tell you that. Oh, and unfortunately, nice. Meg, he died in a in a racing accident in 1980 in the I think it was the Oaks. Oh, yeah, it was it was awful. And he had Ooh. and he had come out of retirement to go back to racing, which was again awful. Oh, and he was famous for jumping off the horse, Meg. I mean, he he leaped in the air and jumped onto the ground. He was he was a fantastic person. Wow. The U.S. controlled many aspects of Cuban life from the 1920s to 1959. By the late 50s, U.S. financial interests included 90% of Cuban mines, 80% of its public utilities, 50% of its railways, 40% of its sugar production, and 25% of its bank deposits, some $1 billion in total. Mm. Little was thought of the average Cuban, who is well below having a chance to live well in Cuba. Sugar, their largest avenue to employment, allowed for only four months of employment a year, followed by eight months of misery. Blind to the plight of the people, Fidel and Raul Castro and Guevara started the revolution in 1959 after a failed attempt in 1953. The effect of declaring a communist system in 1959 immediately stopped all U.S. involvement in the country with a complete ban. As such, many 1940s to 1950s cars are still driving the streets of Cuba. Stunning architecture from the 19th and 20th century have been frozen in time 
Havana, even today, looks like photos of New York buildings and streets from the 40s and 50s. We've actually talked a lot today about large islands, and Cuba is no exception. Cuba is the largest island in the Caribbean and the 17th largest in the world. Interestingly, New Guinea, of which Papua New Guinea makes up about half, is the second largest island in the world. Dad, what's number one? Greenland, Meg, naturally. That's right. I'm dying to go to Greenland. Hey, Dad, I feel like Cuba might be a good spot for you. First and foremost, in terms of real estate business, 90% of Cubans have homes under their ownership. Second, there are no animals or plants in Cuba that are poisonous or lethal to humans, meaning no poisonous snakes. Third, but I guess this would actually mean you should move to Puerto Rico, Bacardi rum was originally manufactured in Cuba. However, production of your favorite moved to Puerto Rico after Castro took power. Cuba is home to over 25 endemic bird species, including the bee hummingbird, which is the smallest bird in the world. This tiny bird grows to six centimeters in length and has vivid iridescent colors. But again, it's not poisonous. There is no petuis in Cuba. It's good to hear, Meg, that there's no patooies in Cuba. Mm-hmm. But even if there's snakes and they're not poisonous in Cuba, I'm still Mr. Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I want to say thank you. We've uh, done another episode now, and um, I'm feeling more comfortable after every episode. Perfect. And I'm really having a lot of fun with this, Meg. Awesome. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to episode four. The runners up are continental superstars. You can always follow us on Instagram, at Countries in Common on Instagram and Countries Common on Twitter. Um, but if you're hoping to get in touch with Mike, you are best uh, off to send an email to countriesincommon at gmail.com. Uh, you're also very welcome to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, something that dad is now in charge of looking up on his iPhone. Uh, he loves reading your reviews, so continue with those. And you can also subscribe on Spotify. So tell your friends and stay tuned for next week. You want to tell them about next week's episode? Well, next week, I think, is going to be exciting because we're talking about countries that purport to have no COVID or very little COVID, but it's questionable. And we wonder if they're being mm, completely honest. We're going to find other things that countries have in common in our episode, which is going to be called No COVID with a question mark at the end. Okay. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. stopping oh the black button right no the red button